you're about to hear my conversation with Dustin Reed. We talk about the infrastructure bill making its way through the U.S. Senate and U.S. Congress, his views on the possibility of tapering in June from the Federal Reserve, what the Bank of Canada is expected to do, and currencies, specifically his view on U.S. dollars and CAD. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with Dustin Reed. Dustin, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me back. The last conversation that we had, we discussed the infrastructure package coming through the U.S. in a fair amount of detail. Since that uh, discussion, we've had more details come out. Uh, What's new uh, about the infrastructure package? What did you learn and how are you uh, digesting it and thinking about it? Yeah, for sure. So there's there's quite a bit to digest on the package for, um, you know, coming out here. Uh, So Biden had the the official rollout in in Pittsburgh on, on March 31st. And it was the, the $2.25 trillion uh, package in total. Um, so just in terms of the, the micro stuff first, then we'll get to the macro stuff. But the micro, you know, how do you get to two and a quarter trillion dollars? Um, roughly the numbers are uh, $621 billion on transportation, but $111 billion for safe drinking water, $100 billion on broadband, $100 billion for power infrastructure, 400 billion on clean energy credits, which importantly is part of the two, two and a quarter trillion, uh, 368 on buildings, uh, billion on buildings, um, 400 billion on home care workers, 200 on R and D, 300 on manufacturing, uh, about 110 on workforce development. And that gets you to two and a quarter trillion. You know, so like a lot of the electric vehicles and school upgrades and, uh, all that kind of stuff is, you know, built into subcomponents of all the, the big components I just mentioned. And so that's all in there. And there's about um, 1. 6, a little over 1.6 trillion in tax increases uh, to help pay for that. But you're still obviously short of the 2.25 trillion. But the tax increases that we've heard a lot about are the, the 28% corporate rate, uh, the guilty, uh, the 20% guilty, which is basically the, the foreign income on, um, on long-term um, uh, profits for U.S. companies, uh, and, a, and a bunch of other small, smaller things, to be fair. Uh, probably not worth going into all the details, but um, yeah, so there's a, a significant amount of, of, of tax increases there as well. So that's kind of the nitty gritty of it. And, you know, now we're, you know, Congress has been on holiday for the last two weeks and coming back today. Uh, and now we're going to see the headlines kind of, kind of pick up again. You know, uh, the first thing I would say is we've got a long way to go here. Uh, a long way to go because, you know, just like we had with the tax, the Trump tax proposal uh, a few years ago, uh, where it really did, you know, at least the initial stuff came out of the White House, it needs to go through Congress to state the obvious. And right. I think that, um, you know, a lot of people have kind of forgotten about that already, even though it's only really been four years since, since that happened previously. Um, so it's, it looks like right now that the House and the Senate are both kind of dual tracking this. And, and putting together their own proposals. So that, that tells you that, you know, there's going to be a long way to go. Plus there's a lot of, uh, news flow around, uh, you know, kind of the progressive side of the Democratic Party is kind of pushing back a little bit on certain things. 
and the more moderate side is pushing pushing back on certain things, you know, particularly Manchin, um, who's the Democratic senator from West Virginia, who gets a lot of press because he's often seen as the the fiftieth vote in the Senate, so to speak. Uh, he's been somewhat cool to the twenty eight percent corporate tax rate, uh, mm-hmm. and in fact, since the since, since the Pittsburgh speech on the thirty first of March. Biden has already said that the corporate tax rate of 28% is negotiable. <laughs> so we actually not even happened within a few days. So we know that, you know, we know there's going to be a lot of trading that goes on here. And, and you know, even though Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID package uh, ended up being essentially 1.9 trillion. So he got the number. I have a feeling that um, this 2.25 trillion is not going to be quite the same. And of course, this all brings in, you know, without, you know, we go on for a whole day on this, but um, you know, there's the question we've talked about in this space before around the idea of uh, reconciliation versus bipartisan and getting it over the line. Uh, and of course, this is probably only about half of what Biden is going to do in terms of uh, the infrastructure side, because there's probably another $2 trillion or so in terms of what I would call uh, more climate and human and green and human capital uh, spending that's going to get rolled out in the next few weeks here. Uh, that's probably going to bring this this bill for these two um, to around four trillion dollars. And depending on how that part of it's rolled out, you could see um, you know <clears throat> Senate Republicans push back. You know even more so, I would say than they already have. I mean, McConnell has essentially said, you know, Senate Minority Leader McConnell has essentially already said none of his uh, the senators will vote for the the Biden package, the 2.25 trillion package as it sits. So there's a long way to go, um, you know, without kind of getting into every every little detail. So I think people need to keep in mind that we're gonna over the next, you know, I would say at least six weeks, see a lot of headlines. Sometimes it's gonna look like it's really accelerating and going through, and sometimes it's gonna look like it's kind of bogged down in the mud. Um, this will ebb and flow over time, and markets, you know. Accordingly, but switching gears just slightly to more of the market implications of this. You know, what's been interesting here is, you know, we haven't really seen um, particularly yields, I would say, but also equities. We have, um, you know, equities have done well in this environment, but you would have thought maybe the yields would have done a little bit, uh, you know, rates would have rallied a little bit more on the back of this, and they haven't. And there's been some other very strong data um, that hasn't had that, you know, we haven't seen. Uh, the market rally, you know, rates rally on, um, uh, you know, as a result of um, that, and and that that's got people, you know, quite curious in terms of okay, was a lot of this very good news already in the price? Because we've seen a real consolidation here after the peak, the intraday peak in ten-year yields of one seventy-seven, uh, right. we've kind of been trading in the in the one sixty one sixty-five, you know, neighborhood for quite a while, and so a lot of people are thinking like a lot of the good news here is is you know is in the price. And I would also say that, um, you know, the infrastructure package, at least the one that's been tabled by Biden, not the second half of it, which is still to come, but this $2.25 trillion package, I think this is important. This is not a COVID package um, where you are trying to get money into the hands of consumers within, I would say, weeks, you know, a week or two or three or four. Um, This is a multi year package that gets split out and spent over time. And everybody knows that when um, there's fiscal policy on the table, particularly infrastructure policy, uh, there's a real lag to the um, the impact on the economy. 
And uh, so when you obviously we're throwing trillion dollars around like it's nothing anymore. It's still a lot of money. I don't want to say that it's not. But when you carve it up over eight years, it becomes quite a bit less, particularly when you're looking at a 20 or 21 trillion dollar US economy. And it's, you know, four or $500 billion a year. Again, that's obviously a, a lot of money notionally. But on right. a 20 billion, 20, sorry, 20 trillion or $21 trillion economy, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's small. It's, it's small in terms of additive. And obviously the tax implications here have a regressive impact on that spending. And there are some that believe that, uh, and I'm coming around to this view as well, that the actual tax implications for 2022 are going to be higher than in terms of, you know, the, so it'll be more negative than the positives for the first part of that 2.25, assuming it even gets passed, um, right. you know, in current state, which it may not, but let's assume that it is. The net additive value isn't much. Uh, in fact, it might even be detracted. Now, I think that's why we haven't seen rates move higher because I think the market, A, is priced for perfection or very close to perfection or at least a lot. Mm -hmm. And, um, you're, and, and people are coming around to this idea that actually this isn't going to be massively, uh, you know, have a massive stimulus on a, you know, on a, on a one-off basis, like we've had for the last few COVID packages, because it's a different type of fiscal, uh, stimulus. So that's kind of what, you know, I'm thinking we're thinking on, um, on the infrastructure side, both from a, you know, here's what's, here's what's in it. Uh, here's what's, you know, it's going to, here's how it's going to kind of ebb and flow and then kind of the, the impact. But again, there is, there is a long way to go here, um, in terms of just what's in it and, uh, and how it gets uh, put through Congress and, and when it starts, uh, hitting the pavement, so to speak. Great. Uh, maybe I'll just circle back on one uh, detail that I'm just curious about your opinion on. Um, the, what's the purpose between splitting the packages into the two, uh, 2.25 trillion and then what you're expecting to be a 2 trillion. Is that for the reconciliation process um, that uh, the second package wouldn't get through or, or what's the rationale there? And then maybe I'll tie in another one, which you said, um, Manchin, you, you brought him up specifically on the uh, corporate tax rate. Um, right. Do you think that the whole bill is negotiable on the, both the spending side and the tax or is it really the corporate tax rate that you expect the hurdles to be where the hurdles will be? Right. Yeah. Both great, both great questions. So I think, um, on the, on the, on the first question, uh, I think Biden thought, or at least people that were advising him and him thought that we could split the bill tw into two for a couple of reasons. One, I think is the reconciliation line items, although there's a bit of a, a tangential answer on that. That's a little more minutiae, but let me come to that in a sec. I think the big reason is Look, uh, you know, from Biden's perspective, look, we can all get behind like real bricks and mortar infrastructure. We've been trying to pass right. an infrastructure deal for years, you, you know, under Trump, right? It never got done. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we know, we know, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink that, you know, the green stuff is going to be a little bit more challenging. Um, so let's kind of, you know, let's, let's split it a little bit and keep a lot of the, not all, but, and that was a bit of a surprise from the March 31st announcement. Let's keep the bricks and mortar stuff in one bill, although they added a lot of other human capital stuff in it as well. And then we'll do more of the green climate in the other half. The tangential thing, so that's kind of part, part 1A, part 1B, the tangential answer is that the Senate parliamentarian 
has a huge influence on what is deemed to be uh, allowable for reconciliation and what is not. And she has recently, in the last week or 10 days, seemed to suggest that some of the things that maybe were not allowed in, um, uh, or at least assumed to be not allowed in some of these bills uh, from a reconciliation perspective, uh, may be allowed. So the path to passing these things under reconciliation might be a bit wider. And okay. that's interesting in so far as um, if she is going to be a little bit more uh, generous in terms of allowing some things that maybe were not, um, this is where the idea of, oh, well, maybe we'll actually make this one big package after all, the $4 trillion. It won't be two halves. Um, if that happens, then it probably takes longer to get this done because I think it'll end up going through a very, a, a very different process done over the next month, six weeks, maybe eight weeks, gets somewhat scrapped, maybe not entirely, but to a point. So I think that, you know, there's a few things going on here. And that's why it was originally split. Uh, But that's, you know, so there's a few a few reasons, uh, those two in particular. On your second question, uh, Manchin, yeah, I think that I think anything in this is up for negotiation. But I think the corporate tax side is... um, is probably the most is the easiest to kind of look at. And there's a few ways to do it, right? Like one is the absolute level for sure. The other is a phase in, um, you know, right. Starting at 21%, right? So, you know, uh, just to pick a number, you know, 1% a year for seven years, you know, sure. that, right. Or 2% a year for three years and then top it up, you know, whatever. Right. But, you know, there, there, are, there are a ton of different ways to, you know, to slide it, to slide it. Right. You could do it a, a number of different ways. So, yeah, I think that's the case. But, you know, another another part to your question, in many ways, I would say every Democratic senator really has a veto here on on the bill. Right. It only takes right. one really make it. I mean, assuming everybody shows up and it's, you know, 150 plus one, et cetera. I mean, Manchin's not the only person here that has a veto. He just gets the most press because he's kind of the most like, you know, right on the right side, so to speak on the political spectrum of the democratic party. So he's the, you know, the first person, but I think really any democratic Senator has that potential. And I think that's, you know, it means there's probably going to be a lot of, uh, you know, pet projects that are going to try and get stuffed into this thing by the time sure. it's done. Cause it's basically, well, you don't want to vote for my pet project. You don't want to do my pet project. Okay, fine. You know, you're not gonna have my vote and I know you need my vote. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I do think that, um, you know, the easiest headline is definitely the corporate side. Um, um, you know, I suspect it'll end up around 25 and, and or, uh, some mm-hmm. sort of sliding scale. It's not going to go up by seven percentage points on day one. Sure. Uh, well, I look forward to, to continue to track this with you, uh, going forward in the future. I'd like to turn a little bit to the Fed, um, and, uh, and get your view on, on the upcoming June meeting on the Fed with possibilities right. of tapering. Um, you know, what are your thinking of that and what, what's the market view on that? So I think the market's been looking at possible Fed tapering for a while here, uh, at the June meeting. Um, I'm pushing back on that a a decent amount. I would say more and more. I think that's, I think it's becoming more unlikely the Fed's going to announce a tapering at the June meeting because it's not going to be in a position to do so yet. I think that, um, you know, we've had a number of senior Fed speakers, including Clarida, um, the vice chair Clarida, talk about uh, the notion that he expects uh, at least $120 billion of QE purchases per 
per month to continue to happen for the entire year, which is the amount that they're per- currently purchasing. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, that's, that's the minimum it's going to happen. And I think, you know, b- both from a, an amount and from a, from a duration perspective. But importantly here, we're going into Q2 and then, you know, this week's a big week with the inflation data and the retail sales data for March. Right. Um, you know, I think that the Fed is going to need a couple of months anyway, after we get through the, the March, April, May, uh, inflation data from two, from 2020, um, really had an impact when we had, you know, the, the zenith of the, of the COVID crisis and, and prices were, you know, falling significantly. I think the Fed needs to kind of see where things settle out on the other side and, you know, kind of get rid of the noise. And the Fed really isn't even going to have the May inflation data when it meets on June 16th. Um, so I guess, I guess it will have the the data, but it won't, won't have been part of its forecast process. Um, uh, you know, for, for the September SEP, for the September statement of economic projection, sorry, for the June statement of economic, uh, uh, projections. So I think that, uh, it makes it very challenging for the June meeting, which a lot of people are focused on as, Oh, here's a nice little timeline. Okay. So in June, they're going to give six months notice. They're going to wrap up the tapering in December. They're going to cut by 10 billion a month for 12 months throughout 2022. And then, uh, you know, there's a year, uh, between the completion of tapering and when they lift off. So January 24. Um, I mean, that's that, <laughs> that, um, timeline is almost too perfect. Um, sure. And I think it's, I think it's tough for that to happen, but importantly, I just don't think the fed's going to have the visibility. Um, so I think, I mean, we're, we're a long way to go here. We'll have a number of conversations before then, but, uh, Jackson hole in August, I think becomes a very important, uh, event in terms of talking about the tapering story, because I think that, uh, either there or the September FOMC would be more appropriate. But right. from a market's perspective, I think this is important because I think the market is still focused on the idea of tapering at the June FOMC. And if that doesn't happen, I would say it's, you know, generally seen to be dovish. And depending on how, uh, the inflation data plays out between now and then, um, there's a few different things that could happen. Particularly thinking of is that, the market could think that the Fed's behind the curve because the Fed's going to wait and kind of run inflation hot, as we've talked about, you know, a number of times here. Um, you know, while inflation's ticking up and the Fed's basically doing nothing to to you know change its tone or 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 its accommodation stance. So I think that's very interesting, and it's still you know kind of all backs into my idea of the idea that uh, that rates are going to continue to to move higher here over time. Again, not. Not necessarily spike with a lot of volatility, uh, but, but directionally move higher in the portfolios. We've been making some slight adjustments kind of ahead of these inflation numbers that we expect to be, you know, hot, um, maybe even above consensus in the quarter as we kind of roll throughout and, uh, uh switching our duration a little bit from the very long end into more the, the, uh, the 10 year part of the curve with the idea that if, um, if the, if the if the market thinks that the Fed is behind, then uh, the Fed the market's probably to start uh, reflecting that a little bit less in the very long end of the curve and a little bit more in kind of the the short end and I would say the belly of the curve. So we've moved 
a little bit of our duration to, uh, you know, to, uh, to reflect that. Uh, but that's generally the views on, uh, on Fed tapering and kind of how we're, we're looking at it from a portfolio perspective. Perfect. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll switch uh, countries and, and talk about uh, the Bank of Canada tapering. Um, we have a little bit more transparency on that. What are your views on, on uh, the BOC tapering and, and possible market impacts? Yeah, for sure. So the bank, Bank Canada here is, uh, has a meeting uh, on the 21st of April. It's a forecast meeting. And we, and I think the market, most of the major Canadian banks are expecting the, um, the Bank of Canada to taper its, 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 uh, QE program. Uh, importantly, again, this will not be the first taper by the bank. The bank did taper in October of last year, mm -hmm. but we do think the bank, and that was from 5 billion a week to 4 billion a week, uh, but extending the purchases a little further out so that, uh, its, its duration, um, with the lower notional amount was essentially the same net impact. Uh, we would expect a similar move here whereby uh, the bank's going to uh, taper by about a billion a week from 4 billion to 3 billion, but again, extend um, that DVO1, so to speak. And again, importantly, I think the bank's going to cease purchasing inside of the two-year space, possibly inside of the three-year space. One of the okay. reasons the bank is making this overall change is because uh, it's getting full in terms of uh, a number of the buckets and, and the overall ownership of the of, of sovereign bonds in Canada. The bank doesn't want to own more than 50%. And um, I think at the current pace, the bank will be at around uh, 48% by the end of the year and maybe 56% by the end of the fiscal year uh, next March, March 22. So the bank wants to tweak that. Um, and they're also getting a little bit full in the buckets inside of the two-year space. So I think they'll cease or very close to cease inside that and switch it more towards the uh, seven to 10 year space. And I think that means that we'll see, you know, more purchases um, on a relative basis in that seven to 10 year space. Um, so I think that we'll see um, the, uh, you know, Canadian bonds, um, you know, rates on Canadian bonds potentially uh, not move as high. Uh, so particularly I'm thinking of 10 year bonds. So I don't think that, uh, 10-year 10 10 year rates on the Canadian side will move up as quickly as those in the U.S. because right. the bank is making making this little twist. And while the Fed's still not making really any uh, major changes, um, but I do think a lot of this news is already in the uh, in the price uh, in right. Canada. So I don't think the I don't think the impact is massive, but I think it does. I think it does help on the margin. It will be probably seen as a bit of a hawkish move, and it's going to kind of shift gears a little bit. In between, um, you know, the central banks in terms of what's happening, you know, what, what the market, uh, thinks, you know, is happening in Canada and maybe the first rate hike here versus kind of, you know, the story we just went through with the U S. Um, and, uh, and the first and, and the, the, you know, the beginning of tapering in the U S and the first rate hike in the U, uh, first rate hike there. So that, that differential between the central banks, so to speak, will be a little bit more, um, a little bit more pr uh, prominent. And I think that, um, Again, I think the, the way to play it isn't necessarily in the currency. It's kind of in a relative, uh, relative perspective on the, uh, on the 10 year space, at least for a few months, but there'll be other macro drivers that'll be uh, kind of impacting this going forward. You did mention the currency there. I'm curious about your views on USD CAD, uh, given the divergence in central banks. Uh, it sounds like they'll be have a slightly divergent policy and some of the fiscal uh, things that we went through. Um, what, what's your view there? So. 
the main driver in terms of uh, the U.S. dollar this year, I think, has been um, the fact that rates have been rising and probably a little bit quicker than most expected. You know, when kind of mm-hmm. coming into the beginning of the year, I think everybody, pretty much everybody was short U.S. dollars. Um, it was very tough to find people that were long, uh, at least in size. And, and I would say we were part of that as well. And I think um, the fact that the Fed did not get in the way, and coupled with the Georgia surprise uh, in terms of the Senate and right. you know, the Democrats essentially having control of the Senate from a policy perspective, and then the Fed, the Fed not necessarily getting in the way, plus plus the vaccine rollout in the U.S., which has been obviously quite quite good on a global scale, from a global relative scale, um, you know, clearly pushed yields a lot higher. And the dollar was able to outperform uh, not only because of those reasons, but because the market was kind of caught flat-footed, uh, short, and those shorts had to be you know, covered. So I think a lot of those shorts have been unwound here. And, um, you know, so I think we're kind of starting from a bit more of a neutral, maybe even slightly long U.S. dollar position as we you know start the quarter. But importantly, um, you know, I, I do think that the rate story is the big, is going to continue to be the big driver for the dollar, particularly if rates are led higher by uh, higher real rates as opposed to break evens, um, which basically means it's growth coming on behalf it's 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 higher rates coming on behalf of higher expected growth as opposed to uh, higher inflation. Um, so I think you know you have to have a view on 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 the rate side. You know, in, in theory, it should it should be consistent, which I you know we obviously try to do. Um, sure. In, key, in keeping with the idea that rates are going to continue to grind higher, uh, you know, for a lot of the reasons we've already talked about here, um, you know, I think that the dollar can still uh, continue to to generally outperform. But I think it's dangerous to talk about the dollar, the U.S. dollar, in kind of broad brush strokes here, as you know, I often have in many cycles uh, in the past. I think a slightly better way to look at it is, at least from a G10 perspective, is to kind of split it a little bit kind of look at what I would call kind of new school versus old school or reflation versus not reflation. Um, so I put kind of the Euro, Sterling, Swiss, uh, yen in one basket. And then I put kind of uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, mm-hmm. in another basket, you know, the latter being, you know, the commodity basket, uh, more of a reflationary type basket. And then the, the other one being a little bit more kind of, uh, traditional, uh, you know, traditional growth metrics that would be drivers. So I can see, for example, I can see a scenario and we've seen a scenario where, you know, Canada outperforms the U.S., but the U.S. outperforms, uh, the yen as an example, right? right. Um, so, so, so the real trade there is actually Canada yen if you do the crosses. So I think again, talking about the dollar in broad brush, broad brush strokes, um, you know, for the first quarter, probably, you know, got you caught out because there are definitely two, two ways, you know, to look at it in terms of the reflationary and non-reflationary camp. And I think that that theme is still with us. I think the mm-hmm. inflation trade is still with us and will be for a while. So I'm going through all that to basically say, I think that's still a very good way to kind of think about the dollar going forward. So I think, you know, if you believe in the reflation trade as, as I, as I do, and I think many people, you know, at the team, at the, you know, on the team do, uh, at least from a, a, a medium-ish term perspective, you know, two or three quarters out, um, you know, I think Canada, Australia, New Zealand can can probably outperform their currencies. Can probably outperform the dollar, but in terms of the big currencies like um, Euro Yen, 
uh, sterling and Swiss. Um, you know, I can see the dollar continuing to outperform there. You know, a lot of it's because that, that economy, I mean, maybe except for the UK is, um, you know, is reopening on a much, much quicker basis. Right. And that, that idea of right. us exceptionalism compared to the rest of the world, you know, from a good perspective, a good us exceptionalism, so to speak, um, is, you know, is able to power the currencies, particularly on, you know, where, when you look at rates and the outlook for rates on the European side versus, um, you know, the U S side and what's already happened. So I think that's kind of, you know, the way to look at it for, you know, for the big dollar. And again, you know, when you look at the dollar index DXY, uh, it's very heavily weighted towards the, uh, the non reflationary, uh, currencies. So you're seeing the dollar index, uh, over the last month or so continue to, to tick higher, but that's because of how it's weighted, right? Uh, around, I think it's around 52 or 53% of the, dollar basket, the DXY index is Euro. Uh, so it's, it's very, very heavily weighted there. And Sterling has a decent size as well. So it's, it's a little dangerous, I think, to kind of look at the dollar in, in, you know, through one lens. Um, that's how I look at it. And I think it's, you know, when, when there's a kind of a bifurcation of themes going on, which is what's right. happening now, I, reflation and non-reflation, I think, I think that works. And I think we're, you know, importantly, you know, for any market, you know, it's always important to know kind of, or at least have an idea of what the market drivers are now and what you think the market drivers are going to be. And I think that, you know, we have, we've seen what the market drivers are now for the dollar so far. And I think that those themes are still intact for Q2 and probably beyond in the summer. So that's the way I'm looking at it. So I still think dollar CAD can grind lower here if commodity. Um, so CAD appreciation against the dollar can grind lower if commodities continue to move higher as I ex- expect that they will. I've got a slightly more hawkish Bank of Canada. Obviously, it's priced somewhat, but I think, you know, the news is, is going to somewhat solidify that. Uh, the question mark and, and oil, I think, you know, after selling off a little bit, I think oil will continue to be a bit of a driver. Um, and, and oil will find a, a bit of a footing here, uh, particularly. Uh, on, uh, on, on Chinese demand and, and a few other things. Um, so I, I do think the dollar CAD can continue to head lower. Um, I would not be surprised if we saw 122 before the end of the quarter. Um, okay. we're relatively neutral on across our portfolios in terms of what we consider neutral in terms of dollar Canada, um, uh, across, across our various mandates, whether that's a uh, high yield or unconstrained or, um, uh, or our global portfolios or core, or core and core plus portfolios were relatively, uh, relatively neutral from, from the benchmark that we consider to be uh, neutral in that perspective. So, you know, uh, that, that view generally reflects it. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our view generally reflects that, you know, that positioning and, um, you know, once in a while we'll, we'll try and do a little bit of, uh, you know, tactical, uh, alpha if, if we think there's a bit of a mismatch in markets, but, uh, from a positioning sure. perspective, that's, that's where we are. We're definitely not massively overweight or underweight on the currency at this point in time. Thanks, Dustin. Very helpful framework to think about, uh, currencies that you've just laid out there. Um, I'll call it uh, at this time. I love the, uh, the thoughts, uh, that we went through on the, the, uh, central banks, uh, the infrastructure package, and then of course, uh, currency. So appreciate your time and insights, Dustin. Thanks again. Thanks very much. Great to be here. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. 
content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.